Well, a Hello. few days have passed. Yes. Hello. Hi. A few days have passed since our last show. My favorite day of the year has come and passed. Super Bowl. Now the most watched Super Bowl of all time. You watched part of it. Um, you were one of the 200 plus billion million people that watched it. I don't know how they figure that out. 124 million people watched it at some point. Is that what the, is that what the number was? Yeah. Up 7 11%, something like that. Something obnoxious, which is great. Uh, have you seen any of the Super Bowls? Um, any of this? Any of the commercials? No. And that's, I, uh, yeah, I've not seen a single commercial. Typically, uh, the first show after the Super Bowl, that's one of the things we'll talk about is what was your favorite commercial? But I, okay. uh, I, I but you haven't know. seen any of like, the, the people no. talking about like commercials? Okay. Interesting. No. Uh, I thought they were overall weak. Just really? in general, but yeah, yeah, nothing like. Well, I mean, nothing like the 1984 Apple commercial. That was a great one. I thought the QR code from Coinbase last year was really yeah. good. Yeah. Just very different. Um, but something I took some notes and I wanted to just generally tell you about them. So if you you can go back and look at this, the Duncan ads have yeah. become very popular since. I didn't really think the ad during the Super Bowl was great, but the four minute afterwards. Mm. Is pretty freaking hilarious. How did that. the uh, how did the Arnold Schwarzenegger State Farm thing turn out? It was fine. I thought it was decent. Okay. Uh, it was him. Uh, he's Austrian, right? It was him yeah. saying it was the whole uh, shtick to it was like him saying the wrong word wrong, and they're like, "No, it's this," and he's like, "Yeah, that's what I'm saying." I can't remember what the word was, but it was mm. it was fine. Um, the Paramount commercial. Have you seen the long form of that? The two minute one. Nope. Nope. Okay, that's really good. But my main thing is that Homes.com had four ads, I believe, during the show. Homes.com, if I recall, was created in Norfolk. I don't know if they're still. Was that part of the Dominion uh, Enterprise? Yes, yes. Hmm. And so it was interesting because it was like Zillow, Homes.com, and something else were all Redfin? in that space. Maybe Redfin. Um I feel like it was something else, but it was just interesting to see like a homegrown Norfolk business that might not be a Norfolk business anymore, but um, was getting a lot of uh, getting a lot of spotlight. And people now mm. know how to um, pronounce Temu, which is not Timu. I know you really wanted to know that. Yeah, I guess. Uh, how, did uh, Post Malone have a Bud Light commercial? No, I think he just drank Bud Light during the show and they showed him as well. And then they also showed, they showed this girl. Um, I can't remember her name. Was it Sam? It wasn't. Today, um, today's guest? It wasn't. But I'm sure she would have uh, enjoyed being, well, I don't know anything about her. So maybe she didn't want to be in that that box with, with, with Tay-Tay. But who knows? I mean, it looked like it was a fun, eclectic uh, time. Sam, welcome. Hey, guys. So glad to be here. Yeah, episode 198. We've been doing this for, uh, gosh, I think we're two shows away from 200. It's great to have you on, Sam. That's what math says. <laughs> yeah, four, yeah. Four years almost. Crazy. So what's, what's, new with, what's new with you and your life, Sam? What, what's your story? Almost five years. <laughs> five years, Hey, um, life has been really busy lately. I think that's everyone's story when we think about 
just being two months into the new year and coming from what has been a really challenging three years um, in the past. So I feel like there are a lot of new moves that people are making and I'm definitely one of them. When I think about how my life has changed um, in the past three or four years since I came here to Virginia. So where, where did you home, come from? I'm originally from Miami, Florida. Oh, wow. Hmm. Yeah. So how did that trans? How did how did that transition take place? If you don't mind me asking, I mean, yeah, everyone is always curious why I came here, coming from such a large area. Um, and I'd like to start by saying the grass is always greener on the other side. And when you come from one area, experiencing one type of culture, uh, a singular experience, um, you want to experience something new sometimes. And when you're young and you're free and you have the flexibility, why not explore? Because even if life doesn't work out, you can always just go back home. So I took a leap of faith uh, almost four years ago now and decided to move to Hampton Roads because I visited the area. I had a friend who lived here. I thought it was amazing. Um, small, but not too small. Close to a larger city. Um, a place where I saw people flourishing and I saw opportunity. And I said, I can live there. And so I packed up my car and I came here and now I've lived here for four years. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. What's the close big city? To me, what I consider a big city personally is DC, but I'm yeah, saying yeah, yeah. that in comparison to Miami. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I mean, top 20 metros, top 10 definitely are big yeah. cities. You got to look at that big urban core. Mm -hmm. um, was there anything specific you said oh you see people flourishing like where uh, and, and you enjoyed your time here anything specific that you you can dive deeper on or what those specific things were that really helped you make that leap to, yeah. to call this place so, home? back home in Miami even though we are very diverse um, there's a large population of Caribbean immigrants that live there um, a large population specifically of Jamaicans um, Bahamians Haitians Cubans that exist um, and Dominicans, I will say that it's a singular experience. Anyone who is from South Florida will tell you there is no place like it in this country. You will never go anywhere and experience what you experience in Miami. Um, and one of those experiences I found as someone who was born and raised there was that um, Black populations, dense uh, areas of Black people only really existed in hoods. And so you go into poverty-stricken areas, um, Alapata, Brownsville, Miami Gardens, those places are known for their hoods. That's where you find the Black people. Um, and that's what I always knew. And I actually didn't experience a, it's going to sound strange, but I didn't experience or come into contact to a larger amount of white people until I was in middle school when I gratefully got a scholarship to a really prestigious school in our area. But every school I ever went to, I only saw us. And everywhere I went to the stores, that's where I saw us. Anyone who didn't look like us lived in wealthier neighborhoods. And that was my life for 20 plus years. But when I visited Hampton Roads, what I noticed was you can find Black people who live in suburban neighborhoods. You can see them walking their dog in the morning, you know, sitting out by the river, um, living what I knew for so many years in my youth as white people things, right? White people experiences, um, lifestyles that were not the norm because we all have behaviors 
that are common uh, depending on where you in your city, right? And our behaviors just didn't change generation to generation. So when I came to Hampton Roads, even in my short few visits, I saw people who lived in nicer houses. I saw mm. people who were kind. Um, I know this isn't, some people don't consider Virginia the South or Hampton Roads the South. It's the South to me, even though geographically, I was really as far South as you can get. It's um, South, right? I think isn't... we might be considered the North of the South. To each their own. Isn't to it, me, wasn't I it the think Mason, everyone the here Mason is so kind. I don't know. But that's that is a re that is really interesting uh, perspective, and I, I I really appreciate you sharing that because uh, I was just in a uh, focus group earlier this week, and we were talking about Virginia, and, and one of the things that I had talked about was like people people tell me all the time how nice everybody from Hampton Roads is, and I don't know if that's a southern thing or. Uh, what the story is, but like typically people from like New York uh, and, and the New England states, uh, Boston area, I mean, they come down here and they're like, gosh, everyone is so nice. And mm -hmm. people will take a meeting and it's just, it's not really difficult for you to, to jump right into the mix and get your business started. Um, and I also, I think that one of the strengths that Hampton Roads has is the, the diversity that we have um, and the inclusiveness especially with the entrepreneurial community. So it's, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. And, um, you know, I, I know for me personally, I take mental notes and producer James uh, and I, you know, we have like a little word cloud kind of thing that we're uh, just, that we're keeping tallies of in terms of, you know, how people describe Virginia and Hampton Roads specifically. So appreciate it. According to Britannica.com, Virginia is part of the South. Huh. That's what I thought. I definitely figured that. Zach, have you been it to is, Miami? It is the highest. I have flown into Miami, but I haven't. Yeah, that's all I've done too. Of Miami, we we planned a trip, but it was canceled because of COVID. Mm. Um, kind of off topic, but yet on topic because I've never been there. It is is Mister Three Hundred Five Pitbull? Is he really Mister Three Hundred Five, or is that just a brand that he created himself? Because Ooh. people outside of Miami wouldn't know if he's telling the truth or not. I'm a fan of Pitbull, but I'm just curious. You know, he went from Mr. 305 to Mr. Worldwide. Is there, is there truth to that? I think there is truth because he has a huge standing in the Hispanic community back home. Um, there are a lot of celebrities, musicians, specifically rappers who, have, who are born in South Florida, Miami, and or Fort Lauderdale, Broward, who... Even, you know, as they grow and become, you know, top 10 A-list, they still have a heart for our city and they'll always be 305. I feel like in my heart, even though I've lived here for a while, I've gotten adjusted to the cold. I prefer the cold. I still see myself as a Miami girl who's living in Virginia. I don't think that'll I ever change. prefer the cold, wow. I do. When you, when you grow up being bla blazing hot every single day, trying to go <laughs> to sleep at night, it's 89 degrees outside. I mean, we went to the beach on Christmas. That's how hot it is. Mm. So I, I just know the one person I know of that moved there used to work at a hatch, Jeremy Johnson. We were talking about him loosely mm. earlier. And he, in the middle of the summer, would think that it was too cold in the office and would have a space heater just like on him 24 seven. <laughs> and I'm just like, dude, like, what are you doing? And he's just like, I'm cold. And so when he moved down there, like, 
he's like, oh, it's it's 80 today. I'm cold. I got to wear a hoodie. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Come on, man. Like, he he loves it down there. Loves loves the heat. I'm like, whatever, dude. But Maybe Jeremy is just anemic. That could really be an issue. Because I know well, for me, when I first moved here, when I moved to Virginia, um, it was very cold. I think I had my heater on 78 during the winter because I didn't understand, you know, how to adjust your temperature appropriately. When I got that first electricity bill, I humbled myself. And oh, went yeah. back to 70, and that's where we've been staying. Um, Wait, what was your um heat at to start? 78. Oh, wow. Because I didn't that's understand impressive. why it was so cold in people's homes. And they'd say it's, they would say, oh, it's at 69. Why do you feel cold? But back home, our winter, when it goes below 70, that is freezing. People bring out scarves, Uggs. Um, we wear our hoods. 69, anything 69 and lower is freezing to us. So that to me wow. didn't feel like warmth and I didn't understand how your heat could be on at 60. Zach is not by Zach's choice. Zach is the only person whose home is colder than anyone that I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we'll keep it at that. <laughs> uh, it's actually pleasant today. I'm in a t-shirt. Um, okay. So when you moved here, did you have a job? Were you doing swim theory? What, like, how did that whole come about? The whole thing come about? So I started my business in 2018. Um, I never desired to have a business. I never planned on being an entrepreneur. I was actually very content with finding a job at a very small nonprofit back home, serving my community and being poor for the rest of my life. That's what I planned to do when I was about 16 or 17. Um, at 18, I found a job at a nonprofit. And I said, this is the start to my life. Um, I was there for a week and a half before they fired me, which was very humbling and taught me, you know, you need to be realistic. And I had been doing swimming as a side hustle, part-time job for many years. Uh, and my mom, shout out to my mom, we'll send her this link. Uh, she gave me the inspiration to take what she said, the swim lesson serious. I said, I'll take the swim lesson serious. And I, the day I got fired is the day I registered my business. And I did it for two years before I moved to Virginia. And at that time, I had enough instructors in Miami swimming for me. And I definitely learned how to go from being the person who does the business to is doing the business to running the business and realizing I had the flexibility to leave and create a life that I wanted because I was still young and I chose to move. So when I moved here to Virginia, um, I was managing my business from home, communicating with instructors, you know, talking to clients, potential clients. And I branched out even when I uh, was doing that to consulting as well to uh, do something that also kind of kept my my mind moving, you know, keep the gears turning, because sometimes running your business on the back end can feel a little bit monotonous. And I wanted something that challenged me. Also working with people in person again, meeting new people was something that I was also interested in. So the name of so your you business is... 20, so, so just is, real quick. You, you, yeah, yeah. Timeline, you moved here in 2020. Is that what we're saying? I did. I moved here yeah. three months after the pandemic really started. Oh, oh okay. Got it. Yep. So right in the midst of, in the summer of the pandemic, I moved here. Okay. Hmm. So the name of your business is Swim Theory. Yes. Talk to us about swim theory. 
what it is and uh, what, 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 when you described your idea to people, what was some of the feedback you received? So when I first started, it was actually called Swim with Sam because it was just me looking to, you know, teach people how to swim. I didn't really have uh, a profound meaning behind it. It was super simple. Um, I changed my name to Swim Theory two years ago uh, when I was in the B-Force program at Black Brand because I realized, you know, I didn't want to identify as the only swimmer. Um, it didn't connect with what I was doing or the vision that I had for my business moving forward. And as I sat with a branding expert, Deanna Lindsay Lewis, and we were coming up with some names, what what kind of rebrand would work where it connects to um, the psychology of how I do my work. It aligns with the vision of the business um, and also our customers' needs. I realized she, I believe she, Ty, understood that there was an intellectual portion to how I work and um, kind of a part of the curriculum that we teach. And so theory was a word that we were playing around with. And she actually came up with the name swim theory. I said, I love that name. It sounded, it had more depth to it. And while swimming sometimes sounds so simplistic. And when I tell people that I'm a swim instructor, I feel like they believe I work at the Y and I only teach kids you know, I take them from starfish to guppies to baby sharks, and I don't do any of that. And I wanted people to have a, a different level of respect and understanding for the industry and the level of aquatic education that we provide. And so with when it, you hear, oh, go ahead, Zach. So the word theory means what in there, though? So like how, theory, how do you, go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. No, you go, you go. So we're utilizing the word theory because. Um, is a particular methodology of how we analyze fear. So for me, my, my style of teaching is not based on technique 100%. It's really about the psychology of how our mind understands fear and overcomes fear in order to achieve goals, overcome obstacles. And so there's different theories about how you overcome fear. There's theories about how you can achieve goals. There's all types of different options. And so I realized there is no one way to teach someone how to swim. Um, there, Even though it's simple, right? We can all use the same curriculum, but it doesn't work for everybody. So you always have to change and adjust what you're doing. I never like to use the word customize. It's a buzzword that doesn't hold a lot of weight sometimes. Um, but I realized understanding how someone's mind works, how they interpret their fears of the water, how they express their desire to learn how to swim, helps me figure out what method I'm going to use to help you overcome that. Um, and it is mental. Most of this is mental and anything physical because swimming is still a sport, right? We're teaching people a new sport at the end of the day. Um, everything sports related and fitness related is mental as well. If you're teaching, you know, your target customer is black women, 35 to 55, and they have mm -hmm. 30 to 50 years of negative swim, talk in their minds, mm -hmm. which is what my guess is the majority of that is. Absolutely. That's a lot of time to have to try to get through that. Yeah. That, that, that mental like roadblock. Yeah. Right. Cause if you're not like, it's, it's interesting to me. I was a swim coach for a long time and it was like the younger you start them, the better they're off. And people are like, no, right. it's too young. I'm like, no, like three, four is like when let's maybe even earlier, like let's get them right. in the water. And when they throw those babies in the water and just let them go. That's wild to me. But anyway, the worst thing is the parents. No, honestly, <laughs> yeah, the worst thing was always the parents because I'd be like, they, they can't go in the deep end. I said, look, 
I got you. Everything is fine. If they're going to drown, they can drown that three feet of water too. Don't worry about the 12 feet of water. And, and they, they didn't like it when I say that, but I'm just like, look, like we got lifeguards around. Everything's fine, but like, we got to get them to feel real comfortable. And it was all the, there would be parents. We'd be doing like deep end practice where we just have them tread water for a long time. And parents be like, I got to get my kid out of there. I said, look, we, I can tell they're having fun. They're smiling. There's, Everything will be fine. I've been doing this for years. But yeah, getting through that mental roadblock, like I can't imagine having to deal with someone who hasn't, who doesn't feel comfortable in the water for 40 years. How how do you do that, Sam? So I want to address what he was saying first about parents in swim lessons. Any swim instructor, any Y that you go to, the parents are sitting out there anxious, overly involved, right, in their child's lesson. And a lot of that comes from the parent actually being weak, either a weak swimmer or no ability to swim and most Mm. likely have some form of fear of the water. And so I realized teaching kids to swim is not hard. Anyone can really teach a child to swim, to be honest. It doesn't take that much work, um, depending on how young they are. They don't have years of fear and um, negative cognitions rolling around in their mind to work with. And so you get to start off fresh. Um, But with parents, parents do have years of negative cognitions. They have years of Um, poor education about how to swim, um, thinking they need to hold their breath right in the pool. Um, But I realized in order to shift how people understand the water, in order to help parents to feel more comfortable or people who don't have kids yet, when they eventually have kids and take them to the pool to get some lessons, is you have to teach them. You teach the adults first. The adults are more likely to teach the kids. Um, An adult who learns how to swim is like, 86% more likely to have their kid learn how to swim, but they have to overcome their fear of the water first. They should be a strong swimmer. I always try to use the analogy of, would you want an illiterate parent? Like how can an illiterate parent help their child learn to read? Like you need a skill, you need the same skill set first in order to support them in that goal, not just have the instructor or thinking about school. It shouldn't be the teacher's only goal to educate your child. There's some role that you have in that as well. Um, and Tim, to address what you're saying of how you do it, I'm a logic-based thinker. So I understand that with fear, fear takes us into like thinking in our own reality versus being present of where we're at. And so I help folks to kind of get back grounded into using logic of understanding, okay, tell me how you feel when you go underwater or tell me what you think about When you feel like you're going to drown, why are you afraid to go into the deep end? What do you think is going to happen? And oddly enough, they all say the same thing, right? I feel out of control. I feel like I'm going to sink to the bottom. I feel like something is going to grab me and take me to the bottom. Hmm. And there's a reason why people have those fears. Feeling out of control and loss is a very common um, thought that we all have as adults in general. And we see how it starts to pop up when we're challenged. Um, I know I feel that way sometimes. I I gym a lot. I'm a strength trainer. And I want you to know I feel very out of control when I have to lift a heavy weight multiple times. I'm like, I cannot do this. That's impossible. And my trainer has to then ground me back into reality. So it's about grounding in reality. It's about, you know, belief in self. uh, And it's also about teaching people to try. Effort makes a huge difference when it comes to overcoming a challenge. And if your challenge is a fear or obstacle, a goal that you've had for decades, you can't make any progress if we're not putting in the effort each and every lesson five to six times in a row. I'm terrified I'm going to die by drowning, by the way. 
and I know how to swim. <laughs> I, I just have this feeling like something's going to happen. Like how there's going to be a shark. In, there's going to be a shark in the pool someday. And it's going to, I hear it's down. a good way to go though. I, I, uh, but no way. I do not. I do not agree with that. <laughs> who told you that? Well, I, I don't know. I, You've read that. In a I don't book know somewhere? who told me that, but I, I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious from a business standpoint, Sam, um, when you're, you're working with a business, you're, you're working with clientele that is just afraid. So like, do you side, do you, do you, how, do, how do you, from a pricing standpoint, how do you package everything? Do they, because I guess my fear as a business owner would be you get someone in, they go to one session and then how do you bring them back? So do you sell them a package? Yeah. How does the pricing structure work? Because um, yeah, I mean, things are stacked stacked not in your favor so you got to create an environment that's going to want them more or do you just do they buy a block of time so funny enough um folks who sign up for swim lessons they've been dying to learn really this isn't something where you have to coax them when they have a fear they've had this fear for decades and it's a fear they want to accomplish these women have literal vision boards sitting in their homes um, with learn to swim on it, with a picture of somebody swimming. So when they find out that I'm instructor or they hear about my company, um, they are excited to learn. They're anxious, but they're also excited. Um, we have a package for them. I always say you learn to swim in 12 lessons guaranteed. It does not take more than 12 lessons to help someone get acclimated to the water. Um, they learn to breathe. They learn to float. They learn to move across the pool. Um, in some cases, depending on their skill, depending on their physical capacity, being able to tread, dive in the pool, they learn all of those things. Um, it doesn't take that long. And funny enough, <laughs> when I do a swim lesson, the very first lesson is the best one. The very first lesson, I feel they achieve the most milestones. They are surprised and excited to do the next one because they've accomplished so much in just one. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's super important. Can you walk us through what that first lesson looks like? Yeah. So first lesson always talks about um, understanding their experience, just hearing it one more time. Um, we've already chatted about it on the phone or they've you know, written me and explained it. So we chat about what is your experience in the pool? Do you ever put your face in the water? Do you ever float? Do you ever have you ever been thrown in the pool? Um, and most of the time it's no to all those things. I don't do any of that stuff. I just kind of walk in the pool, maybe let the water get to my knees or my hips, but that's about it. So the first step is to always practice breathing, to be comfortable with putting your face in the water. I know a lot of programs start with floating on the back, but because people are uncomfortable with water just being around their face, um, getting someone to float on their back where they can get frantic and have water splash in their face, that just seems backwards to me. So I always start with being able to put our face in the water, practice breathing, understanding that when we're swimming, we breathe in through our mouth and exhale through our nose always, and that we are not holding our breath when we swim. We are constantly breathing, exhaling underwater. We go from learning how to breathe to practicing floating, not always perfecting floating, but understanding our body's buoyancy and being able to feel it and test it out. We get right into utilizing a kickboard, um, practicing kicking, moving across the pool so they can be horizontal for most of them the very first times in their life that they've ever done that independently without using a noodle of some sort. Um, we get into gliding and some of them are able to even kick across the entire length of the pool in the very first lesson. And then, um, 
do you in the warmer months do you offer outdoor like open water swimming lessons as well in terms of uh, just dealing with tides and uh gosh what's I, i'm blanking out on current. the name now. yeah the different current the rip tides i guess is what i'm thinking of is, is that something that's offered as well so i don't do open water personally um also here in Virginia, your water is very interesting. It is not Dirty. clear at all. I would never use the word clear to define this water. But even back home, um, it's, it's it's interesting. I don't want to shame. I don't want to shame wow. the area. I do like living here. Um, even back home, learning to swim is not something I would do in the ocean because they need a steady ground. They need something to hold on, like a wall of some sort. Hmm. And also, there's a lot of moving creatures in the water, a lot of things you can step on. That just creates another level of fear and anxiety. So I guess that's one not control. That's one benefit of having not crystal clear water. You can't see all this stuff that is swimming around you. Uh, that is true. That is true. I think the first time I ever went to Virginia Beach, I, it was in like the first six months I came here. Um, I walked, you know, the sand, the sand was so far, it was so much sand. I walked across, I got to the shore and I believe I walked six inches into the water. I could no longer see my toes and I was very confused. I said, how can water do that? Why is this water so dark? And to see people just playing deep, like way, way far, I'm like, is this normal for people to play in water? They can't see it. And it is. Why is that? Why is the water dirty here? Does anyone know? I'm assuming it's because of all the ships. My assumption. I would assume so too. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I just. The only just th don't swim like in the Elizabeth River. Yeah, I just really? don't like the jellyfish. There are a lot of jellyfish here. That's also true. I've noticed that a only lot. only in certain times of the year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Once July hits, they they they've kind of taken over. How often do you guys go to the in, into the actual water to the beach? It's funny that we all live here. I feel like it's very, I think I went once last year. I've been once since I moved here. Like I, we go to First Landing State Park. I feel like that's where you go, Tim, or somewhere around. No, we, we typically will hit Fort Monroe. We'll hit Buckrow Beach. I mean, I hate to say, I mean, Buckrow is really a well-kept secret. Um, oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I actually not been Fort, twice. Fort Monroe. Hmm? Is, Fort Monroe where, is Fort Monroe where that... Um, that crazy bar is. I don't know. There's they have Oozle Finch Brewery there. They have the I think uh, it is Fort Monroe. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's where it's like I got off the boat and I couldn't swim in. It was very difficult. Like the craziest mm. 25 yards. The oh, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was just one day, but man, I was like, this should not be hard. It's like <laughs> <laughs> how many times have you been, Sam, to the ocean front? I've been to the ocean front. I've been to the ocean front a few times, not to go in the water. I think I went in the water the first time at Fort Monroe. And then I went to Chicks Beach. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, recently, I went January 1st. So they did a polar plunge for the first mm -hmm. time. Was um, the water cold? It was absolutely freezing. It was absolutely, and very, your body was numb for about two minutes when you get out. But after that, I was fine. Mm -hmm. Did you get deeper than six inches in, or? Yeah, I went about. Went about to my waist and then sank down to my neck mm -hmm. and then came back up. I was like, I'm good. Mm. I don't know if I ever do that again. That's okay. Some people like to plunge. Some people don't. I'm a, I'm a don't. <laughs> I feel that it's it was a it was more of a 
let's just do it because we can kind of experience. Yeah. Well, I, I know that as a parent, what you're doing, I mean, it's just important in the sense that you go on vacations and then, you know, first thing it seems like kids ever want to look at at the, at the hotel, is there a pool or if you're Airbnb or whatever the case is, I mean, it's, uh, you're opening up opportunity to uh, a lot of parents and kids and, um, you know, giving, giving people the opportunity to enjoy, have some, have some fun. So I, I, I applaud that. I think it's, it's, it's good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I switched when I rebranded, um, changed the name to Swim Theory. I really switched um, the purpose of our business. Initially, when I was swimming with Sam, the whole point was to reduce drowning rates for black and brown communities because black and brown people drown three to five times more likely than anybody else. Um, and that's just, that's just because we don't know how to swim. Um, there aren't programs that are always available or people don't, aren't informed about the programs. Um, and people also do live in the stereotype that black people can't swim, right? Um, that is a, a truth that people choose to live in sometimes. I know that because I have even been lifeguarding at times and I'm watching kids swim and I see a little black boy who's struggling to swim. And one of them asked, why, why can't you swim in this area? He said, you know, black people can't swim. I think he was like 10 years old and he said that. So that was really the focal point of why I was doing what I was doing. Um, but in, you know, in the years of, working with my clients and understanding what people needed. I recognized that swim lessons for kids um, are readily available and that's never an issue to find, right? Um, parents don't mind putting kids in programs multiple times in order for them to learn how to swim. They'll do it summer after summer for five to six years, no problem. They'll complain about the money, but they will still pay it. Um, what I found is that there were just a large number of adults who still did not know how to swim. Um, six out of 10 black adults do not know how to swim proficiently um, or they don't know how to swim at all. And they're and most likely have some sort of aquatic fear. And so in order to shift that and help more adults feel comfortable in the water, um, you know, have a confidence about learning to swim. And also with them being with them swimming for more years in their life, they're more likely to teach their children how to swim. So you won't have to worry about kids being 15, learning how to swim for the first time, they will grow up swimming with their parents and practicing with their parents. Um, but also adults who finally learn how to swim do enjoy their life more. They're able to participate in aquatic activities. They're able to go into the pools and actually enjoy the full length of the pool. They're able to go jet skiing without fear, go parasailing. They wanna try all these things, but they are afraid. And some lessons for adults aren't as prevalent, right? You'll see classes where it's all ages and it's led by a 17 year old who doesn't really understand their life experience, who doesn't understand the depth of their fear, who is using the same curriculum that they do for a three year old just without the toys. Um, and that's not what they're looking for. They want to be respected. They don't want to be shamed or feel embarrassed about their fear because they're 55 and, you know, they've never swam before. I've had I've taught people in their own backyard pool, beautiful that their husband built for them. And they've never swam more than five feet in because after five feet in their pool, it gets too deep and they can't stand up. So they don't even swim in there, but they ask their husband to build it for them. Hmm. So you said, you, you said there's a lot of, there's a, a lot of, a lot of younger black kids that can't swim. They don't have programs available, things like that. Like how, how does that get switched? How, do, how does, 
I mean, it's, it sounds like that stereotype of, of black people can't swim is something that is still very, very much out there, but there are mm -hmm. programs in there now. Like how, how did, like, do you start to see that mind shift? Like, how, because it all makes sense, right? Like mm -hmm. if you, if you don't learn how to swim as a kid, you become an adult, then you still don't know how to swim. So then your kids can't swim because you don't mm -hmm. feel like, so it sounds like it's maybe changing, but like, how do, how do you start making that actual change so that this, this thing that is, what you say? One in every six, one in every five, um, can't swim. Like how, how, how do we start making a real impact in, into aspects like that? Because when you watch even something like the Olympics, you know, I remember when it was, um, manual, um, Simone manual, something like that. Mm -hmm. And she was like the first, um, black female swimmer. And I think she would gold medal or something like that. 50 yeah. freestyle, I believe. I mean, that was a big story because she looked very different than than your kind of standard, you know, uh, American. How, how do you how do we start making that big impact there? Because I think it's yeah. obviously there's a huge hole there. We need to yeah. change it. So let's backtrack for a second and understand why we're at a place where black people can't swim. Um, historically, when we think back to when we weren't living in this country, right? Um, black people have always known how to swim. There are literal cave drawings of black people swimming um, when blacks were shipped from their home country into a new land, when they were trying to escape slave ships and they jumped off, all of them did not drown. They started swimming away because they knew how to swim. What happened is um, when slavery ended and we were in this Jim Crow era, when we had our own colored pools, we were not allowed entry, right? They would close the pool. They would empty the pool. They would have strict regulation where we wouldn't meet certain codes and therefore the pool was closed. Um, they would throw, even when pools were open and people were swimming and enjoying their time, they would throw a little acid into the pool to create this fear so that people wouldn't come back. So when that happens for years and years, um, you end up becoming a generation that doesn't go in the water. I know that because that was my grandma and my grandma used to tell me stories about those scenarios and how she does not swim and she never wanted to learn how to swim. She said, I don't need to do that. I just won't be in water. And we lived in Miami, Florida, 15 minutes from the beach. That was most of her adult life living near a beach. And she never went because learning how to swim, she didn't feel was a need because they didn't allow her to. Um, and so therefore, you know, you, they, they end up having kids and they just don't swim. They don't necessarily have the same fear or the same history, but they say, I just don't need to learn how to swim. It's something I didn't learn and I just didn't learn it. And that's okay. Um, but swimming is a basic life skill, just like riding a bike. You don't need to learn to ride a bike, right? Who needs to learn? It's fine if you choose to never ride a bike ever and just avoid them, but it's a basic life skill. But one thing about swimming is that it's also a safety skill. You can drown. You can die from not learning how to swim. Obviously, there are particular circumstances where sometimes we just drown because there are things outside of our control. But basic swim skills is a safety hazard and everyone should learn. So what happens is um, in communities nowadays, and I can tell you because I've lived it, where I grew up in an area where we had a community pool that was free for kids. If you were 17 and under, it was free entry. Um, it was $1 if you were an adult. 
So everyone had access to the pool. And I used to go to the pool every day after school, every day in the summertime, sometimes twice a day. Um, but then we got new management. And all of a sudden, it costs, I believe, 3 to $5 per child to come in. And I don't remember how many few more dollars per adult. But if you are a parent with three to five children, you can't afford for them to go to the pool every day. And even just going to the pool recreationally, enjoying your time, um, you do end up build. You may not develop necessarily the skill sets of effective swimming, but you develop a comfort. You're able to put your head underwater. You'll start to learn to move on your back and swim underwater. There is a comfort level that's there. But when kids no longer can afford to go to the pool and parents can afford to take their children to the pool, um, there is no comfort level that's built. And it's a desire, something that looks fun. Like you said, kids are always attracted to the water. They're going to go anyway, by the way, no matter what you do, right? Um, so would you rather your kid go and drown or would you rather your kid go and swim? Um, so now I will say there's definitely been a larger push to include um more learn to swim programs, discounted learn to swim programs. I actually learned to swim at six years old uh, through a, a city effort to provide affordable swim lessons. My mom paid $20 a lesson or less back then um, for several swim lessons for me. And that's how I learned. Um, funny enough, so sorry, mom, but my mom still doesn't know how to swim. And something I've been working on, we chat about it, just somehow hasn't happened. But her mom, my grandma, when I say, grandma, let me teach you how to swim. She said, no, I don't need to do that. You know, and it's it sticks in people's mind. But then I've also taught women who are my grandma's age how to swim. I've taught multiple. And I love to see ladies who are in their second phases of life learning a new skill and overcoming a fear and feeling confident. Um, so with younger kids, uh, up, and, up and coming adults that are trying to learn how to swim, I will say there are a lot of pools around, even starting small with just going to your local pool, the pool in your complex, the pool in your friend's complex and practicing just getting adjusted to the water makes a big difference. So when you do get into a program eventually, whether it's a, a city program or a private swim lesson or a group swim lesson, you're not starting from scratch. It's really hard to start from scratch. You can be a novice, um, but Someone with zero experience in the water, never going more than ankle or knee deep is really challenging to start with. With that access to pools and water, do you have a specific pool that you conduct your lessons at or do you go, someone contact you and then you determine where the closest pool is and that's where you meet? How, how, do, you, how do you coordinate those? So my program is specifically focused on working with people who have a pool, right? They either have a pool in their backyard, their complex, or they have someone who has access to a pool. Um, I personally utilize that method just because it's a little bit easier. Um, when someone already has a pool, you don't have to worry about finding one, figuring out if they allow outside instructors, um, worrying about when they're having events, if it coincides with your swim schedule. And also when people have a pool in their backyard, or in their residential area, they're more likely to practice. And practicing outside of swim lessons is imperative to normalizing learning how to swim, normalizing um, you being uh, inside of the pool more often than you're not. So someone having a pool is just easier and it's more practical for them because if we're driving 10, 20 minutes to go to a pool that's not near you, you're only ever gonna go there if your swim instructor is there. You're not going there on your own, to be honest have access to a pool or their own pool? 
have access to a pool. So that could be in their complex. Okay. That could be their friend's complex. Their aunt has a pool. There are a lot of pools out here. I feel like people don't think that they are, but a lot of complexes have pools. A lot of condos. But maybe not, maybe not go to the YMCA because that's a... Because one, they have their own swim instructors there in their right, own right, right, programs, right. and they don't usually allow outside instructors. Yeah, yeah. Okay. How many pools? there's there's a lot of pools. We know that. Like, yeah. Yeah. So you also you currently work with Black Brand as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So I'm a program manager at Black Brand. I and, um, oh, go oh, ahead. Go ahead. No, keep going. Keep going. I was just going to say I run a business academy. It's called the Surge Community Business Academy. We help new and emerging business owners um, learn about business management and fundamentals and all the strategies and tools you need to make sure that when you start a business, um, you're actually running it on the back end and you have a growth plan and you're connected with a community and a network so that you can succeed. And, and if, uh, to follow up to that, I'm just, I, I would imagine, and this is part of my question, what did you learn with swim theory uh, because in terms of like people having to face their fears, mm -hmm. I would, I see the same thing in terms of business owners or aspiring entrepreneurs. They too also have to, to face their, their fears, whether if it's pitching or bringing a customer, their first or second or 20th customer, uh, mm -hmm. on board, you know, what kind of, how did, how did that work for you? What were you able to bring with you uh, as you're working with these uh, early stage founders? That's a good question. Uh, so when I was younger, before I decided that I was going to work at a nonprofit and be broke when I uh, was 16, 17, um, for many years prior, I really wanted to be a motivational speaker. I was dead set because I knew I love speaking. I love um, doing events, trainings. I love those kind of things. And I was like, you know what? I could be a motivational speaker. Now at that young tender age of like 10 years old, um, I quickly learned that you don't go to school to be a motivational speaker. That is not realistic. Um, and so when I got into swimming, I was utilizing swimming as the medium for me to motivate people, to encourage mm -hmm. them, to help them overcome challenges. Um, and what I do now at Black Brand with my program is kind of the same thing. I don't feel like my work has changed at all. It's just a different medium, right? So I'm still standing there an instructor. I'm still guiding people, working with multiple people who come from different walks of life, who have different challenges and beliefs and understandings of the goal that they're trying to accomplish. And we help to ground them in reality once again, um, identify what their goals are and help them to create milestones so that they can achieve that goal, just like I did in swimming. Um, and I think that's why I'm here is because this aligned with who I was. Um, I, swimming was never really my passion. I know that when people hear what I do, they love to say, oh, you must be so passionate about it. Um, but not everyone goes into business for their passion. They go in because something works. Um, swimming is a hobby. It's always been a hobby. It's a it's a fun activity for me uh, recreationally, but then it's a skill set in terms of teaching. And I just chose to monetize it. That was really it. Um, it People feel passion uh, from me when it comes to swimming, just because I love teaching. I love like digging into the why. Why do people believe what they believe? Why do they act the way that they act based on their beliefs? Um, and that's why it excites me. 
but I do that as well in my day job here with all of my participants and folks that inquire about the program. Um, I think my biggest goal with them, uh, with anyone who enters into my program is to help them improve their speaking. Speaking has played a huge role in my life. I can definitely say that I would not be where I'm at if I did not know how to communicate properly. Um, ever since I was, what, four or five years old, learning how to open up my mouth has created opportunity for me in ways that uh, I don't think anything else could have. What did you do to to continue down that journey to, like you said, you you can't, you know, you don't go to school to become a motivational speaker, but yet mm-hmm. you, you've you've worked down that path. What, what were some of the things that you practiced to become a better speaker and to bring you where you are today? I did not practice intentionally. Um, I'm going to shout out my mom one more time uh, <laughs> here because it was all thanks to her. So uh, ethnically, I am Jamaican and Puerto Rican, and I was raised in a Jamaican household. In Jamaica, children have a lot of responsibility at a very young age. At five years old, my mom went to the grocery store. She used to iron her clothes, her and my grandma's clothes for work. She would cook. Um, children can do a lot at a very young age. Myself, at two years old, I know how to fix myself a sandwich out the fridge, give myself a bath, put on my clothes, and then put a chair up against, you know, the uh, the ki- in the kitchen up to the sink to wash my dishes after I have finished eating said sandwich. So I could only do those things because my mom positioned me and taught me how to do it. She would talk to me. Uh, I'm not a big believer in using like baby voices for small children. That doesn't help them improve their communication skills. You should speak to a child just like you would speak to an adult because they're mimicking the way that you speak as well. And that's what helps them to improve their language skills. And I've always had strong language skills because my mom talked to me all the time. And when she would put me in school, put me in different after school programs or summer programs, people were always impressed in the way that I spoke. But it was simply because that's what my life was. I was raised as a single child, as an only child in a single parent household. So I was always surrounded by adults, you know, older aunts and uncles, grandparents, great grandparents. Um, and so speaking to adults is really normal to me. And I wasn't one of those children who kind of gets clammy. You know, your child is really talkative at home. But all of a sudden, when they come into this new environment, they don't know how to speak. That was never me. My mom used to send me, you know, you have to pay your bills in person. Um, my mom used to we used to drive up to Comcast. She would give me the cash and the bill and say, go stand in line. And if somebody walks in front of you, let them know that you were standing there. And that's what I did. And I had done that for many, many years. And so by the time I got to college and studied communications, um, I was kind of a pro. Like it, it wasn't hard. What I learned in school was theory about communication and rhetorical studies specifically. But I always I always knew how to speak. I always knew how to stand up for myself and voice what I wanted. Um and act on those desires. And so when I work with people now, um, I want to train them and teach them how to position themselves in adulthood. Most of our folks are in their 30s or 40s when they enter into our program, um, teaching them how to continue to use their voice outside of their job and use it for themselves in their business. That involves you fine tuning your messaging, understanding what your goals are, Um, Being in line with your passions and being strategic and also knowing how to ask for help. I was never afraid to ask for help ever. Um, Even when I started my business, I was a I am a first generation business owner. 
I started my business and in 60 days, I said, you know what? I don't really know what I'm doing. I should probably get some help. And I reached out for my first business coach and I never stopped doing that because if you don't know how to open up your mouth and ask for help or, you know, get resources, you're not going to grow. And that's what I teach them now. There are so many of these business programs. You're associated yeah. with one. There's there's just a ton of them. Are they actually making a difference? Are there too many of them? Like, why should someone be a part of them? Because you just see so many of them. And it's just like, okay, like, like, how do you choose the right one? Is this like, Mm -hmm. it just seems, I don't know, what are your just overall thoughts on, on the amount of business programs available these days? Specifically to this area, to this Mm -hmm. area. I think it's great, personally. I know that there can be some redundancy in some programs. I completely understand that. But um, entrepreneurs need to be in programs. They need their business to grow. They need someone to talk to and critique them and to bounce ideas off of. And you should never just, you can't be one and done in a program because your business is ever evolving. It's a living, breathing thing. And being able to have a plethora of opportunities in Hampton Roads, which is something, even though me coming from a large city, There is so much opportunity here as an entrepreneur. Um, There's so many people here that are willing to support you. Grants, loans, programs, free, paid. Like, There's so much that you can do. And I think we should grasp it and take a hold of as many as you can that are of value, right? That are aligned with your goals, of course. Um, I think there are, besides programs in terms of programs from particular institutions, there are a lot of individual people that are also trying to make a difference and provide resources for solopreneurs, for up and coming business owners. Um, I think it's amazing that we're all trying to support one another, that we want to see growth and that we are pouring back into small businesses in Hampton Roads, because there's one thing I've learned about this community. It's very people oriented and you guys care about each other and people are committed to sitting down and talking with you and hearing your story and hearing and how they can play a small part. And if we have a hundred people trying to play a hundred different parts, then it helps folks to move along a little bit faster. Yeah, I always, uh, I'm, I'm just of the mindset where if you can't, there's so many opportunities opportunities here in Hampton Rose, and if you can't mm-hmm. make it here, uh, maybe you need to re- reevaluate if you are the 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 person that should pursue entrepreneurship. I oftentimes I hear a lot of people like, oh, they, they will badmouth this area and, and they'll want to move to another city, maybe Miami. You know, it's just like, well, they want to clear water. <laughs> if you can't make it here, uh, yeah. then what makes you think you're going to make it where the competition is so much stronger? And Absolutely. One of the overwhelming things that I hear when I talk to people and talk to founders is they can't believe how many opportunities there are to help them along with their business. Whereas uh, like so many people say, gosh, where I came from, they don't have nearly the amount of resources that we have here. That it's like, so again, if you can't make it here, then what makes you think you can make it somewhere else where the competition? Do you think those areas have the amount that we do here, it's just like, it's not marketed the same way. They don't, it's not the, as, as big of a push. Cause I mean, I get what they're saying, but it seems like everyone across the country is about these things. It's just, maybe there's just a big push for this a different way where maybe it's like, I Oh, I don't know, Zach. I, I just, one of the things that, yeah, that I always try to look at everything through, uh, through fresh eyes. And uh, so Sam over the weekend, we had to make a super quick trip 
to uh, mm-hmm. to Michigan. And so like driving through Maryland and oh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and then the time that we spent in Michigan, I mean, it was just like, it was a very, very big reminder. Like, wow, Hampton Roads, we have, we are good. Virginia, we are good in the sense of, yeah. I mean, just like that, the whole Rust Belt, I mean, it is just, it is just so depressed. And so, I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. and then you come back here and there's like, there's vibrancy and there's life. And, uh, and but I do think that in like San Francisco, there's, there's certainly opportunity for resources, but I think it's a different kind of opportunity. It's more cut, cutthroat is not the right word, but it, it is not something that is grant funded or locality funded. Um, that's just, that was my observation over the, over the course of this past weekend. As someone, so when I was back home, um, there are a lot of programs and opportunities that exist in larger cities. Uh, and I think that they are, you know, talked about fairly often. Um, I didn't feel like it was challenging to find resources personally. Um, but I do believe that the amount of competition that exists there is challenging. And depending on the kind of scale that you're looking for with your company, you may or may not want to go to a large city, right? Um, Unless you are trying to be on top, unless you are trying to um, grab a larger piece of the pie, you you may want to stay in a smaller area. I know for me, I am not super competitive personally. Even when I was a competitive swimmer, I was not very competitive. (laughs) Um, And I knew that always haggling and trying to scrape by and applying for programs and there's hundreds of people who apply and it's hard to to stand up to some of them. Um, And, you know, even swimming is so niche and so small. I was not the only person doing what I was doing. There were tons of people in my area doing what I was doing. And it's still a matter of how do you stand out, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I moved here, even though I moved here for personal reasons, and I didn't plan at that time to bring my business here or to go back to swimming, um, you know, I realized I didn't want to have to scrounge and scrape and be so heavy on marketing in hopes to find people and to find my place in Miami. Um, I think Hampton Roads almost felt like it like invited me and hugged me when I got here. Like folks were so open and willing and um, there are a lot of amazing opportunities. I don't know what the vibe is and why it's so different here. In terms of once you get once you understand that the ecosystem exists, I think one thing I've learned is you don't know what's here until someone actually tells you. So if you don't know the right people, you don't know what's here. And I feel like that's where some locals always want to leave because they say there's nothing here. There's tons of things here. There are too many programs. There are too many events. I can't make all the events and I can't take advantage of all the opportunities all at once because I'm tired and I want to take a nap. But there's something going on almost every single day, 10 times. It is crazy. Yeah, I. uh... It's good perspective. It didn't used to be like that, by the way. Yeah. Like yeah. I was just 20. I was just doing the numbers from the start wheels or uh, the Innovate Hampton Road side. Ooh. And um in 2023, we were just shy of uh of listing 800 events on our calendar. And I mean, mm-hmm. and I was just looking at like 
I don't know, a date later in February. And, and there's six, six things going on that day. And it's just, it, it is just stunning to me how much stuff is going on. I mean, with, there's good and bad. It's great that there's so yeah. many opportunities, but at the same time, I, I can't stress enough the importance. And Zach, you, you will agree is we have got to create density where the last thing we want to do is put founders in a position that they have to choose between this event and that event. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we can create density that the conversation and the collisions that happen, I mean, that, that is to me is, is almost more important than whatever material is being talked about at the event. Uh, those, those serendipitous yeah. relationships are, are really, really important. I just remember like 2010, 2012, like it'd be like one a month. <laughs> yeah. And people are, you need to talk about 800 now. Is that what you said? 800, yeah. just shy of 800. I think that, I mean, yeah. that's, 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 that's great. That's rad. That's awesome. I think it was, I think it was 792, 793. I, it was I, a lot. I just remember like in 20, did I do it the first startup address in 2015? Well, I, I was, was like, just going to bring that pockets. up, Zach. We, yeah, I, 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 I was going through, uh, I was cleaning up. You were out in Miami my, then, Sam. Yeah. I was going through my computer and it was like, I, I found this, like all of a sudden, like this huge file was in my, uh, in my documents. And I'm like, what is this huge file? It turned out it was a state of the city uh, or the state of the startup address that you had done. Uh, and looking back at that, it was like there, the two pockets where events were happening and it was Norfolk with Hatch and Williamsburg with the launch pad. And like beyond that, there really wasn't much of anything yeah. happening at all. Times have changed. It's cool. Yeah. Is there another one of those maps available anymore? Does anyone do anything like that? Did you ever do that? I don't know. So I, now that we have the data, we should run. I, yeah, I, I can run something like that. Um, I mean, it would be still be in very small pockets, which is what should happen correct, because correct. density is mm-hmm. density is yep. pretty darn important in all of this. Yeah. Anything, Sam, is there anything that you, well, Tim, you want to ask the other question first? Maybe we just end up. Oh, this. oh yeah. That's yeah. Because she it is appropriate since she's yes. Um, so Sam, now that you've been here four years, mm-hmm. you you have friends friends and family from Miami that say that they want to come and visit you. What I I'm sorry, I didn't know that was the end of your question. No, no, no. What is the food or restaurant of Hampton Roads that before they go back? To, to Miami-Dade, they have got to try this particular thing and experience this in Hampton Roads. Hmm. I don't know if I have the most positive answer for this. Um, <laughs> while I love this area and I love all the people that I've met, I do not love the food here. I do not think uh, personally that there are restaurants that cater to like what I'm looking for. But again, I also grew up in a high... Uh, mm-hmm. Caribbean area. So there isn't a lot of Caribbean food here. Um, and ethnically, there's just a little bit more that I'm looking for. But my first go-to is Indian food. And I would 100% take them to Nawab and Newport News because their food never disappoints. I've heard about that before. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Nawab. Okay. Well, that's the first one for this list, yep. I believe. Okay. What's the food of Miami? I think it's Cuban, uh, wouldn't it be? So yeah, it's Cuban food, Jamaican food, Haitian food, definitely. Okay. Let's throw mm-hmm. up those options around. 
like gas stations are also cafeterias that have Cuban food and it's actually good. I would, there was one gas station like five minutes from my house. I would always go to for pastelitos. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So that's rad. That's cool. We're just trying to, well, Sam, trying to figure out the mystery. We're not getting anywhere, but it's fun conversations. Good question to ask. We've been all over the map. Yeah. You are the first person to say the food isn't necessarily to your palate, which is, I, I, I think everyone would agree with what you just, you know, because of where you grew up, the style of food that you're looking it's for, hard. there isn't it's a lot a hard of that. comparison. Yeah. 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 And I, I guess, yeah, with me, I want to get to the point where we're like, that we can establish something. Uh, mm -hmm. We're really good at replicating other places, but yeah, we mm -hmm. have to establish that one thing. And, and we're episode 198. We're still trying to uncover the mystery and figure it out. Hopefully one day. I'm not sure what Virginia is known for in terms of food, um, but I'm learning more and more little things. Yeah. The closest are, we've come to is um, the orange crush from a, okay. a drink standpoint. Yes. The white sauce at uh, the Mexican restaurants mm -hmm. is a Virginia is a Hampton Roads thing. Nuts. The peanuts, uh, but you know, but again, it's just it's tough. Yeah, we're 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 working at it. We're working diligently. Yeah. <laughs> One week at a time. One show at a time. Sam, it was awesome. Pleasure to meet you. Appreciate yeah, Sam. Thanks so much. Appreciate what you're doing. I wish you continued success. Thank you. I appreciate the time.